bring a Bible. We have provided one for you. There's a black one in the seat back in front of you. I'm going to invite you to open it and get to page 895, and you'll be in Mark chapter 8 with us. We're so glad that you're here today. If you're, it's good to see especially all the students filing back in. It's just nice. Uh, even, if, if, even if it means that fall is coming and then the death of winter right after it, I'm still glad to see college students come back because I enjoy them, and, uh, and we're glad that, you are, that you're all here today. And I just want to make quick mention, um, we've been talking about a lot. It's because we want you there. Uh, next Sunday night at 5 o'clock. We're having a church appreciation night, which is just going to be a lot of fun, right? The staff's going to put on an event for you just to tell you how much we love you, how much we appreciate you. We're going to feed you. We're going to have entertainment for the kids. There's going to be a dunk tank uh, for you to take out any microaggressions you still have towards us, all kinds of things, right? And so uh, we hope that you can be there. If you haven't RSVP'd, uh, please let us know that you're coming. And, uh, and, if, and, and again, this is not for members. It's for anybody who walks in this building at any time, right? Everybody is welcome. Everybody's invited. And we want you there. And we hope that you can come 5 o'clock uh, next Sunday. Um, but before we get get to next Sunday, we get through this Sunday. And so we're going to be in Mark 8 this morning. I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer and we'll get this message started. So let's pray. Father, I'm so incredibly grateful for the opportunity that we have this morning already to, to gather, to, to say hello to one another, connect, uh, even if it's briefly, Lord, just, just the chance to, to fellowship and then, and then to praise you and to worship you and lift you up. And then uh, at the end of the, this morning, God, to be able to celebrate and witnessing baptism, Lord, all these things uh, we're grateful for. But for now, uh, we turn our attention to your word. And we ask that you would speak the loudest, you would speak the clearest, Lord, that you uh, would be sure that your word does not return to your void, but it would accomplish everything you've set forth for it to accomplish this morning. Uh, God, make, make this passage come to life in our hearts and minds today. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So a couple years ago, uh, Corinne and I were planning to go to visit uh, family, her family in Louisiana. Uh, it was an 11 and a half hour drive, and this was going to be our very first long car ride with the twins, who were four at the time. And so I spent like three months psyching myself up for this, right? I was hoping for the best, but the whole time thinking like, this is going to be awful, right? This is just going to, this is not going to go well. And so I, I overthought everything, and, and one of the strategies I had was, let's get up at like 4.30 in the morning. Right, load up the van, and the very last thing we do before we pull out is we grab each twin, throw them in the car seat, and just take off. And then hopefully, they'll just sleep a couple hours, and then we'll make an 11 half hour car ride, a nine and a half hour car ride, and at least we've got a couple, we've got a good head start. And so we do that, I carry each one in the van, load them up, immediately back up and just take off. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, all right, we had a decent start, right? We got out the door early, maybe this can work. And we're about seven minutes in the drive. I haven't even made it to I-70 heading west, right? And, and I hear Rhea behind me say, Daddy? I'm like, yeah. And then she asked me a question. Now, if you're a parent, you probably know what question she asked, didn't we? Are we there yet? And at this point, I've got to come up with an answer because I think no's not hard enough, Right? Because in my mind, this is what happened to my, like, like, how do you tell a four-year-old, we're not there yet, we're not even close to there yet, in fact, without stops, this trip is going to take 690 minutes, we're seven minutes in, so if you do the math, that's like 1% of the way there, and if you keep asking at this rate, you'll ask 100 times by the time we get there, and I won't be a sane person anymore, right? So how do you explain that to a four-year-old? I don't know what I said, but I, I tried to say, like, not only are we not there, it's going to be a long, 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 long trip. So just like maybe shelve that question for a long time, right? And that's the stereotypical kid reaction to a long journey. That's why you all guessed what her question was. Every parent has heard the question, are we there yet? But we have this misplaced idea that we outgrow this, that we stop asking this when we get older. And maybe we do on long trips, right? But the reality is we just ask it in different places. 
We get impatient. We want results. We want to arrive at a destination where we still have a long way to go. And we do this with our own personal development. We do this with our career advancement. We do this with our spiritual growth. We do this with the development of others. We do this with the growth and maturation of our children. We do this with things that we've prayed to God for. And we might phrase it differently. We might be like, God, why do I still wrestle with this temptation when I've confessed this to you and repented of it like 10 times already? God, why does my kid keep making the same mistake over and over and over again? I've talked to him or her about this time blue in the face. God, why aren't I growing more? I've asked you to do this, Lord. Why isn't anything happening? You know what the core of all that is the same question? Are we there yet? God, are we there yet? Like, how long is this going to take? Are we there yet? Because we live in a world where we've been conditioned and discipled to think that everything should come to us instantaneously. Everything is on demand. Everything is instant. And then we turn and expect the same thing out of God and the same thing out of others when God and people don't operate that way. People don't change in an instant. People don't grow in an instant. And God throughout all of time has revealed that he likes to take his sweet time on things. Because he he does not despise the journey. He doesn't skip over the process. It's part of the joy for him. In today's passage in the book of Mark, we're going to see something that we've seen countless times. We're going to see Jesus performing a miracle. And if you're already tired of studying that, I feel you, okay? But what I want you to understand is this, that the placement of this miracle in the book of Mark, the timing of the miracle, how Jesus does it, right? All of these things are uniquely and intrinsically designed to carry a very powerful message for Jesus' disciples and for all of us who can resonate with not being there yet. And so I'm going to invite Travis Beckner up. He's going to be reading for us Mark 8, verses 22 through 26. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand with him to honor the reading of God's word this morning? Morning, church. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and pleaded with him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he was asking, do you see anything? And he looked up and was saying, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. All right, thanks, Trav. You guys have a seat. Now, at first read... Okay, you might read that and be like, man, there's just not a lot I see that jumps off the page here to me that might be relevant to my life. But this story is another example of the benefits of going through a book instead of just jumping around and choosing verses you want. Right? Because most of the clarity, most of the meaning, most of the purpose behind this miracle is discovered in what comes immediately before and what comes immediately after it. It's when it's read in its context and in the flow of Mark that you get it. And that leads me to the first point I want to make this morning which is that God does absolutely nothing by accident. There's nothing that catches God by surprise. There's nothing that he does aimlessly. There's nothing he does without thought. Everything he does comes with great intentionality and great purpose. And if you were here last week, we looked at a a passage that was pretty difficult for the disciples. We talked about how this is a very important season for them, that they've now seen enough, they know enough, they've heard enough, that they can go one of two ways. They they can go deeper into their trust of, deeper into their following and abiding and serving of Jesus, or they can give themselves the kind of apathy. They can be like, man, we've seen all this before, we've heard all this before, right? And then that lead to cynicism and then eventually unbelief. 
Right? They, could, they could depart whichever way they wanted. And if you weren't here last week, we covered a pretty intense passage where Jesus literally rebukes the disciples with some cutting questions. Look at, look at verse 17 of chapter 8. It says, aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and do not see? Do you have ears and do not hear? And do you not remember? He's not encouraging them here. He's not telling them, guys, you're doing a great job, right? This is a rebuke, and they needed it. They needed the rebuke, and they needed the warning, and they needed corrected. But we all know, right, we've all been disciplined in our life, that after discipline, we all feel a little bit raw, don't we? We kind of begin to wonder where we stand in the relationship. We kind of get in our feelings a little bit, which is why after a tough conversation, hope is always needed. Following a tough conversation, grace is always needed. Reassurance is good. And don't forget what, what Jesus said just after those questions. He's trying to teach them something. Verse 19. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said to him. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? Now, you want to understand exactly what he's getting at there because he leaves it open for them. But you know one of the things he's clearly teaching them there? He's telling them, my miracles aren't just showcases of power. Right, they're not meant just to amaze you. Right, they're not meant just to show off, right? They are, even his miracles aren't by accident. They are object lessons. And each one carries a deeper meaning that thus far the disciples have been missing. They aren't figuring out. He's like, do you remember when I fed the 5,000? You had 12. Remember when you fed the 7,000 uh, 7, and you had 7? And, and they're, they're just not adding the math up, right? And, and that context leads us directly into this story. And it's a remarkably similar to a scene we've read before. So look with me at Mark 7, and I'm going to start reading in verse 32. So Mark 7, verse 32. They brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. So he took him away from the crowd in private, and after putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and said, Ephatha, that is to be open. And immediately his ears were open, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak clearly. Right? So think about what we're told there in Mark 7. There's this group of friends who bring to Jesus this deaf and mute man, and Jesus doesn't keep him in the big public area. He takes him away out of the crowds, into private. And then he uses the sensory. He touches the man. He even uses his spit, and he heals the man. Can you see the similarities between that and the passage Travis just read for us? Thus far in the book of Mark, Jesus has never repeated the same process for a miracle twice, ever. He doesn't repeat it exactly here, but he gets really close. Verse 22, there's a day, Mark says, there's a group of friends that bring a man to Jesus. This man is blind. And they plead with Jesus to heal him, just like the first group did. Jesus then takes the man out of the village, out of the public eye, away from the crowds, just like he did in Mark 7, and he gets him off into private. Then he uses sensories. He spits. Again, not my favorite form of Jesus' healing. I'm not a fan of this method, but he uses it, right? And the man is healed. Two stories. A deaf man and a blind man, both brought to Jesus, both taken away from crowds, both get personal attention, both, Jesus uses spit, both are healed, and in between those two stories, Jesus asks his disciples this question in verse 18 of chapter 8. Do you have eyes and do not see? Do you have ears and do not hear? Now, I'm sure there are more because Jesus operated on levels that are far beyond me. But there are at least two lessons the disciples are supposed to get here. And number one is this. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who opens eyes and ears. 
If the disciples don't truly yet have ears to hear and eyes to see, the solution that is not within themselves. The solution is to go back to the very one who called them. When we get to Mark 9 in a few weeks, right, we're going to read about a father who is desperate for his boy to be healed, and he comes to Jesus and pleads with Jesus to heal his son, and Jesus says to him, anything is possible for the one who believes. And the father responds, I do believe. Lord, help my unbelief. You see, God is not looking for perfection from us. He's looking for faith. The kind of faith that when we stumble and when we fail and when we reject his design and even willfully sin, we will turn back in faith to God and ask him to forgive us and restore us and change us and help us get back in the fight against that failing and against that sin. You see, if they didn't yet hear or see as they should, right? If they weren't adding the mass again in their head, running away from Jesus is not their answer. Concealing that from Jesus and hoping that he thinks that they're the real deal and they're not is not the answer. Pretending that they've got it and they don't got it is not the answer. Being open and honest with Jesus and looking to him for help would be what they need. He's the one who opens eyes. He's the one who opens ears. And second, there's a second really powerful lesson in this miracle, is that, and that is that most things are not instantaneous. Maybe they'd seen so many miracles, they'd begun to believe that God only worked instantaneously. They began to believe that he's like an ATM or Venmo or text messaging when nothing can be further from the truth. I mean, think of it. None of this that you read, that Travis read for us, none of it was necessary. None of it. Jesus could have healed this man in an instant just by saying the word. The whole scene didn't need it. He didn't have to take the man out of the village. He didn't have to take him off in private. He didn't have to touch him. He didn't have to spit. He didn't need to do any of it. We have record in the Gospels of him healing people without touching them, healing them from a full distance away where he's not even near them. And so why is he doing all this? He's doing it all for the disciples. So they would begin to remember the guy in Mark 7. They would they'd begin to say, wait a minute, we've seen this before. This is just like the deaf man and the capitalist. So they would remember each detail and anticipate what comes next. Only this time there's a surprise twist. When they couldn't see coming. Look at verse 23. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village, spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Now what in the world is that? I can tell you what it is. It's not healed. I mean, I don't know exactly what this guy saw, right? But it wasn't clarity. There's some, some blurry vision where, where human beings look like trees wandering around. That's, not, that's better than total blindness, but not that much. It's an improvement. But he's not there yet. So look at verse 25. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, don't forget who we're dealing with here. Jesus doesn't have, like, he doesn't have this internal power meter when he does miracles. He didn't look at this guy and he's like, hmm, I feel like this guy's blindness is like a six on the power meter. Oh, he still can't see? Must have been a seven. Let's try again. That's not what happened, right? Remember, God doesn't do anything by accident. He's coming off this really corrective conversation with his disciples where he confronted them with their remaining spiritual blindness. And he gives them this object lesson, telling them three things. Number one, I remain very personable. I may be the Messiah, but I will work intimately and powerfully in and through you. Number two, I am the active agent of change in your life. I bring the sight. I bring the healing. I'm the he- I bring the hearing. I'm the healer. And number three, it's a journey. It's going to take time. It will not happen overnight. 
You might only see cloudy trees right now, but in time, you will have clarity. Just trust me. Because there's something that we need to remember about disciples. They're on a journey themselves. As, as we read the book of Mark, as we read their stories, they're going to get some things right. Spoiler alert, when you come back for next week's sermon, they're going to get something right. It's going to be a good moment for them. And then they get a lot of things wrong. You come back in two weeks, they're going to get something wrong. And that's just the way it goes throughout the rest of the gospel. They get some things right, they get some things wrong. It's like this back and forth. And it's why one of my favorite character arcs in the Bible is Peter. Because there's no one in the gospels more willing to follow Jesus than Peter. There's no one more confident in his commitment to Jesus than Peter. And there's almost no one who fails so spectacularly as Peter does on multiple occasions. And man, can I recognize so well with his seemingly contradictory characteristics of his great willingness to obey Jesus and his great failing to do so. You can feel that, can't you? And after Peter's greatest failing, in one night, just one night, a few short hours, he told Jesus in front of all the disciples, whatever they do, I don't care, I will die for you. And then he turned and denied knowing Jesus three different times just to save his own hide. And after that, in John 21, he joins Jesus for a breakfast, which is another sermon for another day. But that conversation goes in two different powerful ways. The first is Jesus asked Peter a series of questions meant to convey this meaning. Peter, I know exactly who you are. You're not who you thought you were. You have not arrived. Everything that you thought you were, you're not that yet. And I'm aware of it. But second, he gives Peter a series of commands and a prophecy about his future, and the meaning of those are even better. He's saying, I don't just know who you are. I know who you are becoming. I know who you will be, and that is how I choose to define you. So go feed my sheep. You're not there yet, but you will get there. And that is the message of this miracle of the disciples. You're not there yet, guys, but I'm not done with you. And there's great hope in that because there's another option. Look at verse 26. It says, then he sent him home. This is Jesus sending the blind man home saying, don't even go in the village. Where's the village? Well, the village was Bethsaida. Bethsaida is where Jesus, not long before, fed the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two fish. And John, the gospel of John records just a really sad detail about that instance. That, that the day after the miracle... In Bethsaida, there was, no faith. there was no faith. In fact, in John 6, the entire crowd, the entire village leaves Jesus. Everyone but the disciples deserts him. Because they wanted to see the miracles, but their hearts were not ready for truth. They were blind spiritually, and they did not want to see. And so just like he does with the Pharisees in verse 12 of this chapter, just like he's going to do with Herod later, Jesus gives Bethsaida nothing more. They won't see the miracle. They won't see the man. They won't hear his story. They won't hear his testimony. Go a different way. Right? Again, the lesson is not that God demands us to be perfect instantly. He's looking for hearts of faith and pursuit and openness that are softened to his work and his truth. The process of sanctification, the process of spiritual growth, of becoming like Jesus, is so beautifully mysterious and complex and I've heard it put in a way that, that is probably too simplified. I'll admit that this morning, but I just have a hard time poking a hole in it. That when it comes to spiritual growth, right, when it comes to becoming like Jesus, when it comes to sanctification, without God, we can't do it. And without us, he won't. Without God, we cannot grow ourselves. We cannot change us. He is the active agent of change. But if we're not willing and open and softened to his working, then he will meet us right there. 
And so our own role in spiritual growth is to remain open to his leading, open to his working, desiring of his change. It is to abide in Jesus and be pursuing him, not closing ourselves off to him, not content with our blindness. Because the reality is this, that we're not there yet. We're not there. As a person, as a husband, as a dad, as a friend, and as a pastor, I'm not there yet. You're not there yet. As a church, we're not there yet. And that means that we have two options to where we can put our focus. We can decide in that reality to dwell on all the negative. We can decide to be consumed by all our failings and the failings of others. We can then root ourselves in cynicism, our victim mentality, or survivalism, and we can be dragged down by our own sin and the sin of others and go through our lives as if we are defeated creatures. Romans 7 starts to sound a lot like this. You want to hear the language? Here's what it would sound like. Romans 7, for I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's pretty dark, isn't it? Pretty dark. It seems hopeless. And we can all identify with it. We can all resonate with it. But guess what the very next line is? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ is the one who will rescue me from this body of death. He's the one who will and has saved me from my sins. He is the agent of change in my life. He's the one who began this good work in me. And he is the one who will see it all the way through to completion. I'm not there yet, but he will get me there. Now, one of the hardest parts of my day is dropping off my girls at school. Because I'm letting this really large piece of my heart just walk away from me. I'm, I'm letting go of having any control of what they're experiencing. And it forces me to pray for and trust God with them and their hearts and their experience. But I just very recently made a shift in my morning routine. Because every day I would drop them off. And, and it was well-meaning, but I would say to them, now go be a light for Jesus today. And the Lord revealed to me in that, that while I meant well, right, that that statement every day could actually be adding pressure to their existence. I still want them to do that, but not because their dad mandated it every morning. And so what I've started just saying is this, no matter what happens today, Jesus loves you. Whether you get it right or you get it wrong, whether you ace the test or fail it, whether you are a perfect example of him or you make a mistake, whether it's a good day or bad, his love for you is unchanging because I don't expect you to have arrived yet, precisely because he doesn't. And what I want more than anything is for them to know just how good and gracious and loving he is because when we are convinced of that, we are lights for him wherever we go naturally and effortlessly. It doesn't have to be mandated then. And I don't know about you, but I, I'm, man, I'm just so tired of living in frustration and cynicism. I'm tired of worry and fear dominating my thought life. I want to be a hopeful father and a hopeful husband and a hopeful person and a hopeful pastor. I want to live my life expecting that there's good coming. And it's not coming because of me. It's not coming because of any other person. It's coming because of the character and goodness of God. We aren't there yet, but he's not done working. And just as Paul reminded the church in Philippi, I'm sure this, that he who started a good work in you will, not maybe, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, praise God. Now, if the work is his, and he's going to finish it, right? 
How do we respond to that today? How is it that I can give you some kind of application point that, that can encourage you without adding any unnecessary pressure? How can, I, how can you leave this place, place with more hope and less cynicism? More desire for change and less apathy towards your sin? Well, I hope, I hope and pray this, this little thought will help. And it's simply this. Just pursue the next mile marker. I have this trick I play when I'm driving on a really long journey and I'm tired of driving. I'm just, I'm just tired of it, and I'm overwhelmed by how long I have left to go, even though I'm tired of driving, that I start taking note of those little green signs on the side of the road, the mile markers. And what I tell myself is, just get to the next mile marker. If you're mile marker 221, get to 222. When you get there, just get to 223. And I tell myself, you can get to the next mile marker. And so I'll know each one and count it as progress, and this helps me get closer to the destination without being consumed by how far we still have left to go. So make this really practical. Let's just take, uh, uh, make a real-life example in our church and just be blatantly honest about it. Right, for, for dozens of reasons, the Lord made it clear to us to switch to a group-based model for, for discipleship. And despite, despite the fact that this was new and, and challenging and un unpopular in many ways, a lot of you have taken us up on this. You started groups or joined groups, right? You're meeting throughout the week. You, you've, I, I can't tell you how grateful I am for that. We've heard from many of you how, how that experience has been a blessing to you, and I'm so proud of you for taking that step, but I hope you know we haven't arrived. I hope you know we're not there yet. It's a journey. The destination, right, the end goal is authentic biblical community and discipleship, and it starts just with groups forming. It then progresses to them gathering, and then it goes to group members gathering consistently, consistently, and then they begin discussing, discussing spiritual matters together, and then it progresses to them asking really good questions of one another, and then answering those questions with actual vulnerability and, and not fake answers, and then it progresses to multiple people in the group being willing to lead and pitch in, and from there it moves to praying together and for each other, and then to confessing your sins and struggles to each other, and sharing life together and serving together and praying for the lost in your lives and carrying each other's burdens, and then we will know and experience authentic biblical community. The possibilities and potentials are endless, and we're not there yet. Not even close. But that's not something to be discouraged by. It's not something to fear. It's a new experience for us. We've been conditioned to studies in classes where an awesome, devoted teacher and leader does the prepping and we contribute our presence and a comment or two and then we're done. We've been, we've been used to something you go to, not a way of life you're a part of. So we're not there yet, but hear me. We're going to get there. We will, over time. And it's not because of good leadership, and it's not because of clever strategy, or not because of human ingenuity. It's precisely because of Jesus. Because he wants this more than we do. Because he began a good work in us, and he will see it through to completion. And every single step, every mile marker along the way is to be celebrated. We just need to keep taking the next one with his help. Your kid or grandkid, I don't need to tell you. They're not there yet. I hope this isn't a surprise to you, but they're not going to have the self-control and wisdom of an 80-year-old, the respect of a 60-year-old, the biblical knowledge of someone with a doctorate degree, and the maturity of a fully formed adult by age 17. It's not going to happen. You do get that, right? And so there's going to be misstep after misstep after misstep after misstep along the way. But every step in the right direction is to be celebrated. 
because God is in their life too. And they may not be there yet, but he's driving the car. And so encourage them to keep taking that next step. Set small goals in any tiny bit of progress you see. Praise God for that. Because it's one more mile marker they just passed with Jesus' help. And you aren't there yet either. The good you want to do, you often don't do. The sinful patterns you've already confessed dozens of times to God, you'll probably fall right back into. The Savior is opening your eyes, but you only see cloudy trees right now. And so ask him, what's my next mile marker? What is it that you want to work on in my heart and in my life right now? What's the next step? And please don't despair the journey. Because the best part is, even if we ask 1% of the way there, are we there yet? Our driver is patient, and he's loving, and he's good, and he has not taken his hands off the wheel. Let's pray. Father, I stand before a group of people who have not arrived, and I speak this morning as a person who has not arrived, or simply not there yet. And so around the room, Lord, I, I pray that we would not be discouraged by how far we have to go, but we would be discouraged by the work, or be encouraged by the work that's already begun. Because you promise that when you begin a good work, you'll see it through to completion. And so, Lord, may we be a people who choose hope, who choose optimism, who expect good because of your character and because of your goodness, because you are still working. And Lord, around the room, I pray that you would identify next mile markers. God, if there's somebody who's here, who's considering Jesus, God, who's considering giving their lives to him, that's, that's a work that you began. Now, the natural person does not think about those things. You have done that in their life. And so we pray you'll finish that work this morning, that they would believe in you, God, they would surrender to you in faith. For the rest of us, God, who've done that, Lord, let us know what's the next small goal we can set, the next small step that we can begin praying for you to actively change about our heart, about our life, about something that we do. And Lord, rather than being overwhelmed by the amount of sin in my life, may we be encouraged by the amount of grace in our lives. And we thank you that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one last time together.